It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at PenFed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Niklas Anzinger. In this show, we will talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles and institutional regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is May the 25th in 2022, and my guests are Simone Azevedo and Hank Schuring. Simone, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. Hank, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. Could you please give a bit of uh, an introduction of yourself? I know both of you are healthcare veterans. Simone is a founder and Hank has a lot of experience on the regulatory side. Could you say a bit more what perspective you bring to today's podcast? Sure, I, I can start, um, Nicholas. So I'm Simone Azevedo. I am originally from Brazil and I live in the US where I was relocated while working for a biotech back in 2005. I spent most of my career working in um, biotech with rare diseases and going from commercial areas, marketing, uh, humanitarian programs, public affairs, patient advocacy and patient services. And today I'm the CEO of Shingu Health, which is a health tech that we just started um, recently and aiming to empower caregivers to have a better care and also to engage and empower more patients to have a better communication with their healthcare providers. Hank. Uh, thank you, Simone. Thank you, Nicholas. Uh, Hank Schuring. Uh, I've been probably almost 30 years in the pharmaceutical industry, biotech mainly, in various roles. I've uh, been in uh, the regulatory field as well as in the commercial side, uh, on regulatory, heading regulatory affairs for EMEA and JPEG, and on the commercial side, global therapeutic area lead in rare neurology and rare nephrology. Currently, chief commercialization and uh, regulatory officer at Prilenia, but also co-founder of Shingu and chief business officer. I'll be uh, speaking a lot from my uh, experience in rare diseases uh, over the almost uh, 30 years, and uh, happy to be here to give my personal opinions. Very good. I'm very excited to speak with both of you since you bring expertise both from the private sector side as founders and entrepreneurs and also on the policy side as regulators. So this is perfect kind of for the thesis of this podcast where we want to look at how can we unlock technologies to benefit humanity while we're aware of the risk. So I'm very excited to have this conversation with you specifically about the patient's right to access medication and specifically the right to take experimental drugs. And by experimental drugs, we mean drugs that are not yet approved for use, say by the Food and Drug Administration or the FDA or a local equivalent, right? 
So this is kind of, we'll talk about the ethics and the practice of this um, existing or not existing right for patients to access medication. So to begin, I would like to ease, ask each one of you to give kind of an opening statement. What is the status quo when it comes to patients' rights to access? What is good and what is bad about it? And feel free to inject kind of your stories from your experience or your work into, into your statement. I would say my, my position can be seen in in a couple of different ways because one, I come from the industry and I have these experiences I, I had shared, but at the same time, I am um, a mother of two kids. None of them have uh, any rare disease or very severe disease. Um, recently, I ended up uh, losing my father and my mom. Um, my father due to COVID and my mom, uh, I think, more aging than anything else. But for me, the, the reason I'm, I'm bringing this up is because I ask myself when, when we first start talking, Nicholas, about this, of how would I react if uh, a medication or technology would be somehow um, being developed or already available but not approved uh, for me or for someone who I love. And as uh, an individual, um, if I had to care for someone, I think I would fight really hard to have access to that. Um, particularly if it's someone in your family, you just want to do this and, and try. And um, we know, particularly on the rare diseases, there's so little treatment available that it's very difficult to. Um, to see a hope or the light in the end of the tunnel many times. Um, at the same time, coming from the industry, I know that if you do certain, uh, if you allow access in certain moments of the development, you might be jeopardizing the whole program for not only that individual who wants to try, but for everybody else that could benefit after that. So it's a very thin line and a, a difficult balance to, to manage. And I would love to get into the ethics of this because you mentioned ethics as part of the conversation. And there's so much around this topic and probably never, you will never get an ethicist to say yes or no, right? They're going to just point to you all the things that you should take into consideration. So yeah, I, I would say that um, my way of seeing the right to try it will really depend uh, on in which situation you are. But ultimately, um, I like the idea. I need to, uh, I, I think we all have to learn a lot before we can just, there is no written in stone. I think this is how I want to end that. I'm very sorry to hear, Simone. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Nick. Hank, can you share also your opening statements regarding the issue? What's the status quo? What's good and bad about it? I think the, one of the most important things that I've always followed through my career and uh, in my work in rare diseases is the importance of early access to uh, diagnosis and treatments for these patients, but that across the globe. So for me, it's very important that we strike the right balance between an individual's access to a treatment uh, and if, certainly if it is somebody you know there will be a very strong emotional component as well as making sure that you get a global approval 
for these products so it will become available for everybody that suffers from a disease and as long as we can strike that balance i think we have a great way uh, certainly for patients that are in very difficult situations have a disease for which there is a potential treatment available and if they can't participate in the clinical trial uh, and there is evidence that this may be a positive certainly an option to use but it's not available in every country and i would wish that it would be available at a global level rather than in uh, certain countries only. Also to set the framing for the debate, um, you both are based in the United States and um, the United States is the domain of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. Right now, um, doctors are only allowed to prescribe drugs that are approved by the FDA. There is the alternative to prescribe drugs off-label for other use cases, right? Um, right now, it takes often years of clinical trials to get drugs approved, and it costs hundreds of millions and even billions, right? So this is just important to keep in mind. You know, um, when you have someone that has a rare disease and there is treatment that is in a clinical trial, Right. So you have to wait until the outcome of the trial, until it's approved. Right. Also, um, I think there has recently in 2018, um, the FDA introduced kind of a way to access clinical stage, um, drugs. Is that correct? And can you, and can you tell more, tell us more about there, that? There is a way which is called expanded access or individual compassionate use where uh, a physician can request the access to a uh, treatment that is not yet approved is in a clinical trial and uh, FDA can support that. Is that very hard or is it very easy to get this access? That's a tough question to answer because that depends on uh, the physician has to take responsibility, will probably have to have their IRB or ethics committee on the site to support, make the case. Um, I think if the data on the product are It's in clinical trials and there is a kind of a positive benefit risk. It's rather straightforward. And if you have multiple of these, what I've seen in the uh, past is that FDA then asked, instead of doing this as an individual case, to come up with a program or an intermediate program where they can have multiple patients allowing access to that and make it more like a sponsor ownership. So far, so my, my, the experience I have had is that it is not the most difficult process. It seemed to me when I read it online that looked a bit cumbersome, but I'd be very interested or, you know, just to hear more real life cases, how easy or hard is it to get? Because that would kind of seem already like a nascent right to access, right? If it was, you know, pretty universally accessible to you to make use of those, um, yeah. this right. So it, it is Uh, pretty usable. I think in all those cases, what you will see is that the physician has to request it and will have to work with the company because they will need to get access to certain uh, data with regards to uh, understanding the benefit risk. They will need probably a copy of, the, of an investigator's brochure and they will need to understand if the company has the supply to do this because companies in a developmental phase will not necessarily always have unlimited supply of their product. And the first and most important aspect will be that they can support the patients in clinical trials and will not end up with challenges on supply perspective. 
uh, if it is a chemical compound, that's probably easier. When this becomes a biological, where the lead time of getting from a breaking, for example, for a recombinant protein, a vial to start the process to having product that may take six months, that is a different discussion. And I want to mm-hmm. add mm-hmm. something to that, Nicholas, because I think there, there's a, a piece where it used to be a very complex process in the past. I think the FDA made it easier in, and put also a lot of responsibility on the company's shoulder to see, uh, you know, how they want to handle this kind of request for early access in any form or shape. I, I also think the point that Hank raised about the supply, it's something that usually people don't pay attention and can create a lot of frustration. Like there's literally tons of development programs that they are learning as they grow also in terms of the manufacturing. So it's not that the product is there sitting on the shelf waiting for other people to test on the clinical trial to then become available. It's like literally you have enough to run the clinical trial, not as a vial more or less. And um, and then the question is like, you know, why would you give this to someone outside of the clinical trial and then again jeopardize a whole development process? Uh, at the same time, if you are the one who needs that, you want to have access and, you know, <laughs> you screw the clinical trial people, right? It's just a matter of like how I can try and have access to that. Yeah, and part of the manufacturing piece I would add is logistics because um, if biotech companies especially do not have an infrastructure in all the countries in the world, they are generally in a few countries where they do the trials and that's where they can get the product. So if you do the studies, let's say in UK, Netherlands, US, Canada, and you get a request from Italy, there is not an easy way to suddenly import and get it through all the regulatory uh, approval pathways like import license, uh, acceptance of the product, an Italian physician that accepts it because it is a non-approved product and the liability for that physician uh, as well as from a product perspective as personally and the insurance part, uh, there are multiple elements that play a role that have to be considered on the logistical side beyond the manufacturing and supply piece. So I imagine when you're someone who needs that medication or when you're a um, relative of someone and we are when you're already very stressed and anxious that process sounds very daunting right um, correct absolutely. and this nicholas i'll tell you a story mm-hmm. so when i joined the biotech back in 2001 my first job was literally to transfer a patient who was a brazilian patient who was in a clinical trial in vancouver back to brazil for the holidays, and then um, this patient would need to go back to Vancouver to finish the treatment. Meanwhile, we opened expanded access, and we were able to um, grant access to one Brazilian patient to this expanded access. So you can imagine the the challenge that we were facing. Out of how well, many so patients? The, the whole in the the. Um, the trial, the phase three trial, I think it was 24 patients. Hank probably knows the numbers. We were able to get one expanded access in Brazil, and we had one Brazilian patient enrolled in this trial. But on top of that, just the process to get this approved in Brazil, to ship the product to Brazil, Brazil back then, and, and this at part, I don't know if it has changed, but Brazil had uh, back then be part of a list of countries where the U.S. would only authorize the shipment of the drug to Brazil if the local authorities on visa in this point would also accept it. 
because there was a whole history of using patients as guinea pigs outside, you know, the the developed uh, countries and so forth. So it took eight months to actually get this patient to to receive the first infusion. Eight months, and for that um, story, we have a success rate of four percent, but other twenty four. So that's one interesting data and, point. And not only to... that, as a company, we were giving the drug for free to a patient on expanded access. And in Brazil, you would pay 37.5% taxes of any any value that you put on the product. Right? Wow. So there's no incentive. <laughs> Believe me, there's no incentive <laughs> to make things <laughs> easier for anyone. And what, what you see is that some companies have taken a slightly different route. So in oncology trials, what you sometimes uh, see is that beyond the trial arm where they do the real analysis to check for safety and efficacy and if it works, for patients that may just outside of the inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria, they have what uh, I would call a rescue arm, which is Maybe in a way you could say a, a way for a uh, right to try for patients who just deviate from it to still be able to get access to the material in a kind of a controlled manner so they still can find a way to get the data. And I think that is, for me, another important element. I to, uh, in many ways, if people get access through the right to try, compassion use, expanded access, certainly in rare diseases where the number of patients are often very low, it would be for me personally, I think uh, I always say access to such a medicine at that stage should come with also uh, giving back in the form of data that will help the further progress of the development of a product and better understanding. Also, um, there's not only expanded access to clinical stage drugs. Um, sometimes, or in many cases, there are drugs allowed or approved by regulators in other countries than your own. Do you see that very often, that PACES try to access drugs in other All countries? And what All are the, the time. possibilities to do that? <laughs> I think that is, what are the me, that sort of... is a very easy process in many ways, which where companies mm -hmm. can do a lot because it, it, you can almost mm -hmm. see this as a form of humanitarian programs or uh, in other ways. And I think Pfizer today had a great article where they, from an access perspective, are now saying that in 45 low-income countries, they will provide their products more or less at a, a cost-neutral way, which I think is a way of starting into that direction. But if a product is approved in a key area like Europe or US, and it's not yet approved uh, in an other country, it's a name patient basis type of an approach where it should be able to get it to that country, uh, certainly for patients that cannot wait until maybe in that country it gets approved. So doesn't this sometimes, or does this in any way give some countries or regulators an incentive to say, hey, it's allowed in this country to encourage medical tourism? Is there something like that happening? The, the, so I'll add two sides of this. One is what Hank wow. described as this guy. Technically, is an easy way to access, right? So if the product is approved, many other countries will just accept that. But the not necessarily is fast one for example some will require a whole bureaucratic approach to that uh, in a way that they will need to do brazil is a perfect example unfortunately like you know although we're supposed to have universal access in brazil 
there's a lot of what we call the judicialization, which means that everybody who wants a drug that is not approved in Brazil will need to go uh, against usually the government or an insurance plan to suit them to then get the decision that they would have access and someone will pay for their treatment uh, in Brazil. And then this process of exporting to Brazil is, is, starts, is, for example, if it's a, a product approved in the U.S., we'll go to Brazil. Um, and then it comes all the costs associated and everything that I said. So it, it's never a, like a straightforward, clean process in, in a country like that. In other ones, you may actually have countries that will pay for the drug even before it's officially approved. So France had this kind of a, a program at one point. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Swiss, uh, Switzerland also had. Few other countries in the world have this. But at the same time, it really depends on which product you are talking about and who's going to pay for it. In the rare diseases space, it's a lot of what it's considered a high-cost product or high-priced product, and who's going to pay for this? So sometimes the government um, will not be interested, and as an individual, they also don't have the ability to pay for that. So that's when humanitarian programs come to, to into place for that matter, to kind of bridge this process. But um, medical tourism can be more easy to see, to be seen or to be used if you actually have a country like the U.S. where the cost of healthcare is so high and you need to get a surgery that might cost pennies or will be even free in some other countries. So it's a slightly different on the medication side, I haven't seen uh, this medical tourism. I've seen more like for surgeries or very complex procedures. Um, so it, it's a slightly different approach. Well, the Chinese people would go to Hong Kong then to buy some mm-hmm. of the, these therapies that would be available in Hong Kong and not in China. Interesting. So to summarize the status quo, you know, when you're a patient and you have a rare disease and there's no drug readily available for you that's approved. You're very likely to face kind of a um, Byzantine bureaucracy where you have to convince governments, insurers, potentially find a humanitarian organizations to help you and find a company that's able to supply it potentially in a country um, that's not your own. <laughs> Is that a yep. fair summary? That's a fair summary. That's a fair mm-hmm. summary, yeah. So I would like to take it back a bit to a first principle view. Um, why do regulators, why do we say drugs need to be approved for you to take it as a patient? Um, and I would like to start with an example. So Steve Jobs, right? He was diagnosed with a pancreatic tumor. He refused conventional treatment, which was probably very ill-advised and died most likely as a result, potentially treatment could have added additional years of life. Um, I'm not entirely sure that's true, but let's assume it is. So this decision was clearly not in his best interest. And you could even argue it had a very negative impact on society. Steve Jobs is one of the most productive members and he would have had potentially more productive life years. So would the doctor be allowed to treat Steve Jobs against his wish, like drug him and give him the treatment. 
we would all say, oh, well, obviously not, right? Steve Jobs said that's against his will. Steve Jobs has kind of the right to make a bad decision, even though it's sort of not in his own interest and also not in the interest of society. So how is it different when it comes to taking a drug that's not yet allowed, regardless of whether or not it's good or bad for you? So even if it's bad for you, you know, don't you have a right to make a bad decision for yourself, right? And to take treatments that's mm, the treatment that you want. How are these cases different? I can see so many ways to answer this question. To start with, you know, I can't, I can't let the opportunity pass without saying, you know, we were, we would be willing to let Steve Jobs make the decision for himself, but apparently Texas think that they should make the decisions about my body if I don't want to continue with a pregnancy there. Having said that, this is not the topic here today, <laughs> but I just feel like we, I shouldn't let this go without saying. Um, and, and I think it's it's also a, a point where, you know, the individual is looking for his or her own, their own interest. The right to try, and in this case particularly, Steve Jobs actually opted to do something that it was available, regulated or not. He just refused the expected path for his situation, right? Well, let me frame it a bit differently, right? So in many um, discussions in ethics, we assume there is a, um, you need consent with someone, right? You can't do something against their wish. Like if you want an abortion, nobody and somebody's willing to do that for you. Um, a third person is not allowed to force you and them to not get it, right? In Steve Jobs' case, you can't force Steve Jobs to take something mm -hmm. he doesn't want. Yet, when you're a cancer patient and you find a um, doctor or a company that has a drug that you think could help you, we have regulators that say, no, that's not possible, which in my mind is the same thing as intervening in a process of like voluntarily agreeing to a certain treatment. Sure that I agree with that regulators say uh, it's not possible. Yeah, the first thing that if you are a patient and you have, uh, let's say, a cancer and you need treatment, the doctor will look at what is already available, will look at what is in clinical studies that may be beneficial and see if you would fit in that study if that is the right one. And in the last case, if you would not fit in the study, and you, the doctor still feels that is an uh, important potential treatment, they can agree with the patient, let's ask the, the company uh, if they would be supportive of compassionate use slash expanded access prior to approval. So I think the framework is much more advanced to look into that, but it has to be a discussion between patient and physician. If the patient decides, I don't want to do with anything of that, I will want to take my own route, that's anybody's personal decision to select. Right. So you're saying, yes, if, even if the doctor says, hey, it's not a good idea, and even if the FDA says, hey, this drug is not allowed, it seems like you should be allowed to still take the drug, right? So there is like a, a I just want to make sure that I understood the, the points because there is a couple of components. So one, 
the the right to try can be compared to uh, let's say that you are homeless and there is an empty house on the street. Do you have the right to live there? It's not yours. It's someone else's house, but you don't have a house and there's this house is empty, right? It's someone else's property. So we would, I'm 100% sure that we would fight like hell to make sure that this homeless person would not get into that house, even if it's not being used. I would say that sometimes it's exactly the same situation. So it's someone who wants to use a drug that it's one, it's not available to them. So it's almost like, you know, it's a, it's a house that belongs to someone else. But if the, the government says, I have no problem. If you want to go there, you can go there, which it, it's basically what some regulatory agencies will do. Like you can try, but it, it's not my drug. And it's not my decision. It's the company's decision to actually make this drug available to you. So how would it be different to make a drug available to one person who is not part of a clinical trial, who doesn't have support from the, the physician or whoever is involved on the treatment process, different than someone who is a homeless trying to get into a house that is just available in the street? So it, it's it's this the, the unfortunately, I would say, that is this idea of property, right? That plays a role. What what be, what is mine? What belongs to me, and where my rights conflict or or have a challenge with someone else's mm. right or interest? Right? Yeah. Well, I'm kind of presuming in the example that you find a company. Or maybe it's your friend who is a research scientist as a university at a university and has been sort of working on this for a couple of years. Um, you know, it doesn't have institutional mm-hmm. approval or whatever, but you trust your friend who you know mm-hmm. is a very good scientist, right? And you know, um, your friend is willing to give it to you voluntarily and you're willing to take the risk, right? So what justifies, um, what justifies us in saying, no, that's not okay. Oh, no, but I think that this case could happen, right? I think that the challenge here is when people want to try a treatment that has been developed or is already available and, and belongs to a company because they have the registration or they are running the trials and so forth, and they are regulated by... FDA or something like, or another regulatory agency. This is the tricky part for me is because the, in a, particularly in a country like the US where the liability can turn into a lawsuit that it's worth millions or billions of dollars, even if you hold a cup of coffee that expected to be hot, but it's not, they don't mention that it's hot on the cup, therefore it's a liability. So, you know, like, There's a whole legal system also behind this to make this process a little bit more complex than just saying, okay, I want to try, give it to me. Because here you want to try and, you know, you have a friend who will give to you. But if you go to a hospital where you should be monitored during this, then the hospital will say, hell no, because you can sue me if something goes wrong. So I don't want to try. So it becomes a barrier. Or 
You know, I said, oh, no, but I want to get this administered in a pharmacy. Well, CVS may say, no, not in my pharmacy because I don't want to pay for you mm -hmm. if then something happens or someone in your family that decides to sue me because you want to write something that, you know, it's not approved by the regulatory yeah. agency. Well, let's try to make the case a bit more realistic. So assume that you need treatment and you want a specific drug that's not allowed in the United States but it's allowed in the Netherlands, right? And you find a company that's willing to ship it to you to, for you to take it in the United States. Is that possible? So it could happen depending on the importation rules. So if it's, it's um, depending on the kind of product, it will get into the United States, either, you know, they like it or not. I mean, <laughs> drugs get into the United, like illegal drugs get into the United States People travel all the time and they buy drugs, approved, approved drugs in pharmacies, right? And travel to their countries where the drug is not available. It happens all the time. The question is, can you control this? The answer is probably not, because otherwise it would not happen, right? But I can, like, I'll, I'll give you the, the very basic uh, thing. When I moved to the U.S., One of the, my favorite medications for headache, it's called Dorflex. And it's the number one medication available in Brazil, but it's not available in the U.S. All the time, I would have it on my carry-on. Nobody ever stopped me and prevent me to take the medication here in the U.S., right? But this drug is approved in Brazil. I brought with me for my own consumption so there's no risk associated with that. And the worst that could happen is I have an adverse event and I report this and that's it, right? This is why there are regulations. <laughs> Now, if I go to Brazil and there is like a, a drug in development there and I want to bring it to the US and then I want to get to go to the Brigham and ask my doctor there to administer this to me, believe me, There's a whole expectation that if I feel worse, if I die, someone will suit them. And there's not going to happen, just not going to happen because of the system that is put in place uh, to regulate healthcare. Yeah. yeah. Well, what I want to get behind is kind of the justification. You know, you said that um, there's regulations to prevent me from taking a drug that has side effects, right? Well, what if I know that and I'm aware of the side effects and I want to take it anyway, right? So, you know, people climb up the Mount Everest, even though that has a severe risk mm -hmm. of side effects for them, right? And nobody would say, hey, we're not allowed to, or we should prevent people from getting up the Mount Everest because they could hurt themselves, right? So why, um, how do we justify regulations, This is an, uh, a very interesting one and an, a tough one because what you're talking about is benefit risk rather than safety. Uh, personally, uh, and that is a personal choice, and, but we see differences in the world. If you look like a disease like MS, you can go with uh, benign products, you can go with high efficacy products, to put it mildly. The high efficacy products generally come with a different safety profile with more risks associated with that. For me, it has to be always a discussion between the treating physician and the patient on what your risk appetite is there. If you want to go for the higher efficacy because you feel your disease is more progressive and you accept the safety part, you should be able to do that. So 
that is an individual discussion that should always be a possibility. Simone, you wanted to add something? Yeah, what I, what I want to add is just the the fact that we can discuss the drugs that have been available, right? Um, and and the right to try there is there's no question about it. You may have challenges to find a place that will administer a drug if it's not approved in your local market. That's like the probably this is the biggest barrier, particularly in a country like US. Now, the right to try of drugs that have not been approved anywhere, it there is a, a a different approach to that. And and in the beginning, we were kind of heading to to that direction, right? So if you are developing a drug and uh, you didn't enroll on the clinical trial for whatever reason, maybe you were not, you know, meeting one of the uh, the inclusion criteria, you name it, or you know. Other people show up before you because there is a limit also in the number of patients that you will enroll. So you want the right to try that medication. So one, it goes back to the homeless situation. So that drug is technically not available yet and not for you. So what are you going to do? You're going to force someone to give it to you just because you want, right? And then there's like, I mean, this debate can go in not only for drugs, but anything. Like I want a Chanel bag, well, I don't have it. And, you know, I'm going to force them to give to me. Probably not, not going to happen. Um, but having said that, there are mechanisms in place, as Hank had described, of expanded access, compassionate use, and even humanitarian programs that are in place to support some of these situations. I think the biggest challenge comes when Expanded access is not available for whatever reason. And let's say that it's pure supply. Okay, so I don't have supply to give to one more person. How do we manage that? Do we stop the clinical trial to be able to give to that person who wants to try? Do we jeopardize the trial? Because it could be a very different patient profile that could actually jeopardize the whole trial based on the current regulations or, you know, the endpoints that you put together for your clinical trial. And with that, maybe it will not work for the one who wants to try and will actually become a barrier and not accessible to those who could actually benefit. It had happened cases like this before. These are the cases that I wish we had an ethicist here right, to, to even bring different perspective because I don't think that we will have a right or a wrong answer. It, it's going to be an, like a debate forever. Keep in mind the, the alternative part of that, uh, which you will see companies in companies in their thinking. If somebody comes up with a request for access to a product that is under development for indication A, and they say, well, based on the mechanism of action, we think it might work in condition B, but no development work has been done. Uh, and there may be some in vivo type of, uh, in vitro, maybe in vivo studies that it would support, but there is nothing known on the dose or whatever. One of the challenges could be that without, if you would grant access at that moment, you might end up with data uh, or adverse events that you were not expecting because you don't understand the dose, which will have an impact on the other indication that you may be starting to look for a regulatory approval and would delay the access to that product for 
multiple patients. And that is a balance that I think we also should keep in mind. So the right to try, as I said from the beginning, has to be considered in a responsible manner by all parties involved. The right to try cannot be a simple available access for everybody who wants access to whatever development product in development, even for indications for which it is not intended or being developed at that stage. Well, you you need someone who's willing to give it to you, right? You know, someone who is producing the drug, right? And um, right now, the system is the person that's producing the drug needs to convince the regulator whether or not they can sell it to patients. That's not correct. That's not correct. That is only correct for when you look for approved products. So then, as an applicant or sponsor, you submit your safety, efficacy, and manufacturing data, and you seek an approval for patients that have that disease, your indication, to allow it to be prescribed by physicians. But that is a review. If you talk about individual cases of expanded access, that patient will have to talk to their physician. The physician will have to submit a request to the company if they are willing to support, and the physician will then have to submit a compassionate use request to the FDA, or if FDA sees multiple cases coming, they can talk to the sponsor and ask the sponsor to set up an intermediate or an expanded access program that would allow multiple patients with certain criteria to get access to this product in that programmatic way. Okay. okay. Um, to shift gears a bit, so in often speed is important, right? Sort of patients need uh, a drug now to be able to survive. So take the COVID pandemic, right? Under normal circumstances, it would have taken much longer to approve the COVID vaccines. That's why we had Operation Warp Speed and sort of expedited um, sort of access and, and trials. Um, isn't it that many patients of rare diseases are facing the same situation, right? I mean, they are having diseases that could end their lives, but, you know, the pros, there is no Operation Warp Speed for them. True. Uh, it would be great if there would be a little bit more. Um, this is why in 1984, the orphan drug legislation came into play uh, to support development of new products and new treatments for rare diseases. Um, while there has been great success, I would also argue that there are probably about, maybe about 5% of the rare diseases to date has an uh, approved treatment. So there's a huge amount of work still left. And unfortunately, we will also see some rare diseases where the numbers of patients will be so low that it's probably commercially not even viable to develop a medicinal product. You know, it's not set in stone that the approval process needs to cost billions or take 10 years, right? You know, take go back to 1965 and, you know, it wasn't the case before that. You didn't even have anything close to that. Um, and we've also established that sort of taking too long for patients to get something that would save them is a net loss, right? <laughs> you know, it's a harm that's actively done to them in a way, right? By withholding what could save their lives. There's a risk that it's not a good drug for them, you know, but, um, you know, each one of us, when we live our lives, we make calculations of risks we take. We go into our car, it's a risk we take, right? So. Um, I'm kind of trying to say or to establish um, it's somewhat immoral to me to have the process take too long, 
right? So it would be like saying, hey, you know, Operation Warp Speed, no, you have to wait five or 10 years until we are safe enough that, you know, there are not enough, there, there, there are no side effects for them to take, right? But that same sort of immoral calculation is kind of made every day towards many patients of rare diseases. Right, so there's kind of a responsibility to make the process reasonably fast so people who need it can take it. If you assume that, you know, um, drugs need to be approved, um, when patients, um, otherwise have to go through a Byzantine bureaucracy to, to get the medication. Yeah, I would argue that there is that possibility in rare diseases. Um, in rare diseases, you will often see that there is only one pivotal trial needed and one proof of concept study. So instead of a phase one, a phase two and a phase three, you will see a proof of concept and a confirmatory study. And in some cases, you will even see that the accelerated approval route can be used, like uh, by using a biomarker that is considered to be representative of long-term clinical outcomes and even accelerated like in oncology. So that process does exist. Even uh, FDA has issued recently some guidance for gene therapy companies, I think about almost like NS1 trials. So I think there is much more to that support to accelerate development for rare diseases. Uh, could there be more done? I think we could always do more to accelerate approval for rare diseases. Uh, certainly, yeah, if I but, look at the, the um, field of neurodegenerative disorders, there's a huge unmet need. Yeah, but that's not enough for me because, you know, how likely is it that we'll get um, faster approval for some of these um, drugs that could help people with rare diseases, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there has been temporary drops in the FDA um, approval process and the cost for it, followed by sudden increases again. And I don't know how it is when it comes to the time for approval, um, but, you know, in some cases, 10 years is just not a basis for negotiation. One year is often not the basis for negotiation. And I'm just not that optimistic that sort of going through the institutional process is going to make things so what would you propose? Um, faster and cheaper. Well, let's assume patients have a right to take experimental drugs and the FDA gives guidelines or recommendations. They say, this is safe, this isn't safe. We don't recommend using that. But, you know, you have freedom to take it if you're aware of the risks, right? So... You know, patients themselves are typically not choosing their medication. As you established, Hank, it's usually doctors, right? So that would be still a negotiation between the patient and the doctor. And the doctor would have to say, potentially also under certain obligations, hey, you know, there's certain risks in taking a drug. It's still in trial phase. It's not approved. You know, um, my best estimate of the risk is this and that. But ultimately, it's your decision. And, and Same how, kind of as in the how, Steve Jobs case. Yeah, but how would the doctor know what is all available? And how would the doctor know how to make a decision? What is the right product, right combination for that patient? How do they do it now? They now get all the information from a, a product in a packaging insert, which reflects the assessment and agreed upon claims. So... In the case that you were just describing, uh, I don't see how a doctor would get a package insert with all that type of information mm -hmm. on what is known about the compounds, uh, how to use it in the best way. So my question, I, I understand the concept, but my question would be, how do we get doctors to fully appreciate, understand all the ins and outs of the available compounds and use them in 
the best possible way to maximize patient outcomes because that part yeah. I totally appreciate and I would love to do something on accelerating that and maximizing patient outcomes. Yeah. Well, you know better than I do about this, but my assumption would have been that doctors, um, you know, fish around with multiple sources of information, right? They ask other doctors, they look at industry magazines, they look at what companies that they work with provide right now and what evidence they have collected and whether or not something no. is effective. Then, so, well, I, can, can I just add one thing here? I think the, the, the part that might not be so uh, transparent as, as you want or, or trying to say is that um, if it's a company developing the drug and particularly on the rare diseases, it's most likely to be you know, one company developing the very first treatment for that disease ever, right? Once the first one is approved, then it's a different story. But to be the first one, that company is most likely to be the only one that has some data about some, that specific compound that has been studied. And this data usually is not available until you have your studies done because of IP protection. And I know that we can talk about this part as well. Uh, so there's very li little um, literature or knowledge about the potential side effects or, you know, the, the dose or everything or anything else. I absolutely love your concept, Nicholas, of how can we actually accelerate drug development as a whole. For that, I do believe that we should probably put our heads together and come up with some ideas. So why every, you know, phase three has, it, it, I'm exaggerating. I, they, I know they change and, and Hank knows better than I, but most of the time you hear a phase a three will be a six month trial or a 12 month trial or a 24 month trial. So there's like this chunk of six month trial periods of, of time uh, that are usually done. Could be done in three months. Is this enough? And then how do you know if this is going to work? in the long term, because we have so many examples of drugs that were considered, you know, like the potential revolution, even like in diabetes, and turns out that the accumulation in their liver of the patient was created, was actually giving them a cancer, and they were dying of cancer in their liver caused by that drug. But you only see this if you do... Um, 18-month follow-up or 24-month follow-up. So there's always like this debate of how fast you can go and then what happens in the end. Because, of course, 18 months after the first patient was diagnosed with the liver, the company actually shut down the whole process uh, for that drug. And eventually companies actually had to, to shut down because of that, because of lawsuits and patients that want to be compensated for the damage that that drug was created. I, th I think like this is for me the part that we as human beings still haven't figured it out. Like, okay, I'm, I'll make my decision to cross the street today and I want to cross the street right now. But if a car hits me, then I'll blame the car that hit me for that. And I want to make a hell lot of money out of that, at least in the US and in other countries, you know, there's equivalent to that. So, it's how we balance our right to try with our responsibility 
to for, for making that decision. It, it, for me, this is the most important piece that we still haven't discussed. One idea that could help, it's without changing and overhauling the, the current approach. Um, if you look to medicinal products or drugs, if you buy something, you get a package insert. If you look at the indication wording, it is always one disease. And one of the things that I've always felt would benefit uh, potentially is that instead of having one disease there, that the indication would describe the biological pathway that is impacted by it. Because if it works in a biological pathway in two diseases, why would you have to test it in 10 diseases in clinical trials instead of being able to use it in those patients? Um, collect real-world data, update your labeling and everything for the real-world data rather than having to do, again, clinical trials for each individual disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that you're, you're kind of touching upon sort of the issue that sometimes drugs need to be approved multiple times, right, sort of for a very specific treatment. Yeah. Also, um, you know, there is a whole, you, you know, the FDA basically treats drugs from other countries that have been approved as they have not been tested in the United States, right? Um, if you see the recent uh, approach with regards to oncology products that were developed in China, uh, mm -hmm. you can look back to Lilly, what was happening earlier this year and how that, uh, how the FDA's uh, lack of support for yeah, that yeah. basically closed that loop. That would have been an, uh, a way for, yeah, yeah. in the end, getting cheaper drugs. I mean, what I'm trying to get at the FDA, and it's not the case across any regulatory agencies, is I think much more ban and control than others, right? So other regulatory agencies are kind of more sort of on the accounting, transparency, auditing side or registry side, right? So these are different regulatory approaches. The FDA is kind of very, this is allowed, this isn't. Sort of we do the big clinical trials, but we don't allow human trials, right? So... What I'd like sort of as a way forward is to put more pressure on the FDA, if on the FDA to be more permissive and to be more, to be less ban and control, to be more like, how do we hold people accountable in the case of damages? How do we provide access to good information to make patients and doctors, um, to allow them to make good choices instead of saying, we decide for you. That's kind of what I'm trying to get at. Maybe an example that might help in this discussion where I would totally support is in many rare diseases, there are often uh, very challenging outcomes. Like if you go back to Pompeii disease, if you, the infantile onset form, patients would probably die within uh, 12 to 24 months if they were born with that disease. You could uh, think of doing there the approach of a placebo controlled trial, which is unfeasible because no parent would support that, which is. I think in many ways not the right approach because if you have a potential treatment, you should treat all of them. So an ethical, I would almost add to that. So the way we did that about 20 years ago at Gentime was we basically started going to clinical trial sites or to hospitals that had records on these patients from the past. And we developed a comparative historical database. And then we basically looked at the same inclusion-exclusion criteria and used that as a historical control. Given it was survival, it was one that FDA has agreed to, and FDA also accepted that for SMA. And I think we need more of these type of approaches 
that allow more patients to get more treated and less of a risk of placebo. Because personally, I find it very challenging if I hear about placebo-controlled trials where sham procedures for gene therapy are used, uh, like uh, lifting the skull and doing a sham gene therapy process, which to me is not good for the patient. And maybe we need other designs in some of these cases if it's uh, slow that we have a delayed start process so that any placebo patients after a few weeks or months will automatically get the product anyways. Simon, you, I think you have a, a couple of ideas that were burning for how we can move forward. So what can we do to um, give patients better access to drugs? What can entrepreneurs do? What can policymakers do? Um, what can uh, innovators well, do? I'll, I'll start saying that um, if you just look into the traditional way of developing drugs, you get uh, you know drugs being developed in the US and eventually in Europe. It's getting more into Japan and China, but that's pretty much it. Like uh, I think, for example, Latin America is way behind on drug development, and then drugs are developed here but the patients are enrolled anywhere in the world, right? And then the drug is approved here, and then it's not available in the other countries where those patients actually participated. Many companies actually have been very uh, fair and, um, and, and, and give the treatment to those patients or at least try to keep those patients on treatment. Granted that some countries will not accept uh, the patient to continue on treatment outside of a clinical trial. So this also should be part of the deal, right? So if if you are letting people being treated in your country and participating in a clinical trial, why would you prevent this person to re continue receiving the treatment once the drug is approved? But it happens. So for me, we should start from, from this kind of place. If you are doing a clinical trial, and let's say that you are an American company starting a trial in the U.S. and you want to launch here in the U.S., but you have patients enrolled in, you know, um, China, Hong Kong, um, uh, Argentina, you name it, right? I, I mean, why why would you need to then have to apply for a whole registration process in all those countries and more. Why it would take years before this happens. For me, this is like almost like a mandatory um, to any company. You want to do a clinical trial and you want to enroll patients anywhere in the world, you are making the commitment to make this drug available and work with local authorities the same way that you are working with the FDA. Okay, yeah. I was going to say I would like to add one more thing there, and that is access, because what is currently happening is that there are sequential approvals and health technology assessments because of the reference pricing, which means that even if a drug is approved, it will not be immediately available in every country because of this idea of reference pricing, which is almost a way for countries to say, I uh, even for high for development for countries that have a high GDP to say, I don't want to pay more than for a country with a low GDP. So undermining some of the aspects in the past where a GDP-based pricing was more or less much more in uh, use. And nowadays, I think while it has positive effects on budgets of countries, it has led to a delay in excess in uh, countries that... Uh, are less developed. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this this for me is like the the 
madness of this process, right? So, uh, and and I think that what we we would benefit as a society is like, do, don't we have the Big Mac index? Uh, why such approach is not available um, for medication? So, if you want to, you know, and 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 there are strange things that happen. Like some countries, and I we I remember this story. There was one country in Eastern Europe at one point that uh, we were uh, donating drug there, and they had the ability to then start paying for the treatment for more patients. And uh, and but the government decided that they want a ridiculously low price. And if the price would be so low there, then it would have a whole cascade in the the whole world, uh, with, which would make things more complicated. So as a company, we said, okay, then we will not sell there. We're going to just shut down operations and continue to treat the patients with humanitarian program. And that's it. But limited to, you know, the number of patients that we treat today. Mm-hmm. Well, the government changed their mind and said, well, no, but, you know, we need to have the mm-hmm. the office working here. We want people to be employed and we want to offer to more people. Well, then you pay the fair price. But the fair price then comes back, right, of what is it? Is it a basket of nine countries like Brazil used to have that would select that the lowest prices in the world? And Brazil said, oh, and by the way, I want to be the lowest. No, I want actually the drug to be available mm-hmm. in Brazil the day after, the same day as it's approved in the U.S. And anywhere, right? So, you know, what if we said, you know, what gives someone in Brazil the right to say, well, the FDA or, you know, European Medical Agency or in Singapore, uh, that's, you know, we're better here. Yeah, <laughs> but, like, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I mean... And that that's to me, like, again, to me, that's kind of immoral. Right, because you are actively preventing access to what's very, very likely safe drugs. Right, if they've been approved in Singapore and the Netherlands, now what gives you the right to say no? Nope, they have to be tested here. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so that could be kind of one change. Hey, you know, hey, here's a list of OECD countries. If one of the regulators there approves it, you know, you as a doctor, you're free to prescribe. As a parent. As a um, producer, you're free to sell it. As a patient, you're free to take it. Just to add to that, though, that um, there are genetic differences in certain uh, ethnicities that you need to keep in account, and then you need to ensure that your clinical trials are diverse enough to allow to support that. Yeah? The Japanese population and the Chinese have generally different pharmacokinetic profiles for drugs that you need to make sure you know to make this work. I, and I, I think I love the, this comment that you made because for me also there is a flip side of this, right? So we do recognize the differences uh, on the Chinese or the Jewish uh, population, but we have historically avoided uh, or had stopped even clinical developments for um, African-Americans in general, like black African-Americans in indigenous, mm-hmm. sometimes they are excluded for clinical trials. And there are some important differences as well. But ultimately, I think we... We look into so much into the economics of these populations as well, instead of just looking, okay, th- these are all human beings that deserve to be treated. So the diversity of a clinical trial as the diversity of ability to diagnose people, it's really critical if we want to make things available anywhere in the world in a very fair way. So 
you know, before I would, I would say I, today I would challenge like before saying like, okay, I'm here in the US, I want to develop a drug and I will do a special clinical trial in Japan because Japan is an important market for me. Yeah, I want to make sure that actually the whole population of Americans have access to this medication. And today, unfortunately, this doesn't help happen. You could do uh, studies in cert- outside the US in your, phase, in your proof of concept to accelerate it and then for your confirmatory study, get back. The, you can do your phase one studies in Australia, which is faster and cheaper. Um, also, we've established before, as a patient, it's totally okay. So if the drug you want or your doctor recommends is not available, say, in Brazil, you're totally allowed to go to Mexico or the United States where it is allowed, right? You have that right as a patient. That's fine. So... Would it so? Isn't that also interesting for entrepreneurs to look which countries have sort of, you know, regulators that have sort of a very good list of you know drugs that are approved and find the patients that could benefit from going there and taking it. I think there are already companies that are working on this. Um, there is, I think, in uh, Leiden in the Netherlands, there's a company. I, if I have the name right, My Tomorrow, that is combining this type of thinking of products in development for patients with an, uh, a disease that uh, for which no treatment is approved and trying to link those two. Right. Why, why I am in the U.S. and my health insurance works here, but if I travel to visit my family in Brazil, I can't have that or, or it becomes a, a real nightmare, right? At the same time, you can make a financial mm-hmm, transaction mm-hmm. anywhere in the world. So can we actually create a, mm-hmm. a, a health insurance bank or you know a universal health insurance that would be <laughs> i mean awesome it's already i think part of the who mandates in many ways that they consider health uh, a right for everybody yeah mm-hmm. but there's a, like yeah. a, a big gap right between declaring that health it's access to it should be universal right and and make it available so uh, f- for me, this is mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I became very passionate, for example, about sickle cell, because when you start understanding why sickle cell patients still don't have the treatment that they really need, it, it is really nothing makes sense, right? It's a historical issue with the mm-hmm. economics behind the population that is most affected by, mm-hmm. uh, by sickle cell and so on. But even when there is some sort of access or care, it becomes a problem at one point for these people to, like if you are a a, a child with sickle cell, you have a phenomenal care in a country like the US, but you are most likely to die before you are five years old if you live in Nigeria. And it's cheap treatment, right? That it's available. Now, if you become an adult in the US with sickle cell, your quality of life will decrease significantly because people don't want to treat adults with non-oncologic blood disorders. So sickle cell then becomes not interesting. The, the, you know, there's like a whole issue with that. And many patients get even worse because these people have been treated in hospitals until they become 18. They turn 18 and have a crisis, a pain crisis and go to that very same hospital. And they will ask, if you are there just because you are an opioid addict. It's like it, it's almost like 18 years of your life completely disappear because of the color of your skin. Mm-hmm. Like how mm-hmm. we actually foster this debate 
to be actually able to find solutions that really make real the universal health access that we we want to see happening. You made a comment about uh, vaccines earlier and COVID. So one of my hopes would be, and I'm also not an expert in that field, but that with the mRNA vaccines that have now been developed as a platform, that it would allow us to do a similar approach for any type of virus uh, disease. So maybe we can finally get to a vaccine for Ebola whenever it comes up every time, mm-hmm. instead of uh, for years having not been able to do that. So yeah. I sincerely hope that it could be developed as a platform and then based on what is already mm-hmm. known, quickly go into human trials to support yeah. that type of a thinking instead of yeah. having yeah. to do everything again and again in the same way. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think we're at a point where we're strongly disagreeing with each other. Um, you know, mRNA technology, I have high hopes in it. What really blew my mind was that the first COVID vaccine, the Moderna one, was developed over the course of one weekend, right, in January 2020. So the researchers just needed the genome sequence from China, and then they basically did it on their computer. Yeah. So that's possible for other diseases. Of course, the next time there's a big pandemic, and again, there's many unseen pandemics for many patients, you know, we should also have the institutional mechanisms to accelerate that process. To yeah. You know, um, one solution that I'm particularly excited about is the trend of charter cities. Charter cities that sort of um, try to take the best rules and regulations from other countries, right? I'm based out of one charter city, Prospera which basically says what we talked about. So if a drug is approved in these 20 OECD countries, um, a doctor that has a clinic there is allowed to prescribe it. Right? That, again, then could give opportunities for medical tourism, for patients to come. And second, I think it would also put pressure on the FDA or the European Medical Agency and other regulators, because I don't think that's too much to ask, right? If it's approved there or it's there, then that could also make, you know, regulators across countries move together more, um, work together more, right? And say, you know, if you approve it, you can do clinical trials together, you know, to test it on different populations. That seems to be... Yeah, I mean, we didn't mm-hmm. see the challenges with the approval happening with the COVID vaccine, right? To your point, like I have never seen something be approved in so many mm-hmm. countries in the world, so fast as the COVID vaccine. So the, yeah. the, the path forward exists, mm-hmm. it's there. I, I mean, it, it's like, you know, carry forward. I think that's a fantastic closing statement. Um, Simone Hank, this was a very a fantastic discussion. I really enjoyed to um, learn more from your experience about sort of the, the medical system, about the Byzantine um, sort of requirements for many patients but also kind of the opportunities we see and the hope we have to um, you know, give patients more access to the drugs they need to live better and longer lives in the future. Um, for you and for listeners, I'm organizing a conference about healthcare uh, on Prospera on the island of Roatan in Honduras on September 23 to 25. You can find it on infinitafund.com. You can find more information about these conferences. Simone and Hank, I hope to see you there. Um, last question, um, where do listeners find you and what um, are you particularly looking for right now? Should any, Are you hiring or are you, um, who are you looking to, um, to approach you well, right now? So 
people can find me here in the U.S. or in Brazil. Um, I speak both languages, <laughs> and we are on a remote company anyways. <laughs> but Xingu Health, that, that actually spells X-I-N-G-U, um, we, we have really this dream of making people um, aware and, and own their, their health and forget about health data, right? Health data, it's, it's a piece of that. But the empower, empowerment that it's needed to really have a good conversation with their physicians to be able to have the support that they need. And this includes particularly caregivers. So our main goal right now is really to find ways to support caregivers, particularly the family caregivers who give up on so many things, but are the, you know, the, the foundation of the success of a treatment. So we are learning. Um, I, I would dare saying that we are um, looking for potential investors in this crazy market. I know it sounds completely insane, but I, I do believe that the right people that we are looking for, it's more than investors are people that really want to see the, the right thing getting done. And for that, I welcome, you know, people who are experts in, in uh, as developers, um, in behavior changing. Uh, we, we need to change so many things that um, happen. And um, yeah, people who believe that we can make the difference, this is the kind of people that we want to see working at Shingo Health. So thank you very much, Nicholas. Mm-hmm. I appreciate this. Fantastic. As I said in the beginning, I have two roles. Uh, one is the CBO of Shingu. So I think Simone already gave the address there. Then it will mm-hmm. always come. The other is I am a Chief Regulatory and Commercialization Officer at Trilenia Therapeutics. And we have a late-stage asset in uh, a phase three study for uh, Huntington disease. So a rare disease with a high unmet need and no effective treatments approved. So we are expecting results early next year let's say early q2 next year which is a very exciting place to be we are still a private company we we have some open vacancies which you can find on our website at www.prelenia.com and people can reach me uh, on linkedin just uh, look for hank schuring s-c-h-u-r-i-n-g and uh, it will get to me fantastic thank you so much also for pushing the frontiers of technology to have better drugs and better treatments for patients and more privacy um, in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs) 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.